Hello everybody, my name is Andy and welcome back to UFOs and other paranormal stuff. It has been some time since the last episode was released. A lot has been going on in life since then. Of course, COVID-19 is still going around and keeping my work very, very busy and unpredictable too. As well as that, I've moved house. As such, had to move studio, set up everything. And of course, what happens when you move house? You pack everything up, everything's organized, so to speak. And when you unpack it, it's all magically disorganized. But hey-ho, there we go. That's all part of the fun of life. Anyway, I'd like to thank everybody who has listened in, in the meantime, and before, of course. And I've got to boast a little bit now. We've had listeners coming in from virtually everywhere. The United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, France, Australia, Norway, New Zealand, Sweden, Denmark, Yayaskadema, Belgium, Spain, Argentina, Mexico, India, Russia, Japan, South Africa, Ireland, Brazil, Puerto Rico, Finland, Guatemala, Greece, Netherlands, Dominica, Germany, Chile, Austria, Colombia, Estonia, Hungary, Italy, Kenya, Sri Lanka, Peru, Thailand, Turkey. I am truly humbled that podcast is reaching basically everywhere, all parts of the world, and that is great. Thank you very much for listening and keeping on listening. The last episode, Your Stories, proved to be quite a popular episode, and I'd like to thank everybody that contributed to it. Thank you very much for giving me your stories. As always, you can pass on your stories to me via the email. The email address is ufosandotherparanormalstuff at gmail.com. I know it's a bit long. UFOs and other paranormal stuff at gmail.com. Send me your stories, tell me how you wish the show could improve, or anything basically, provided don't forget to keep up with the group on Facebook. Again, type in UFOs and other paranormal stuff, and you can join the Facebook group. Uh, the same handle is for Instagram, and for those of you that prefer Twitter, type at UFOs and OPS at UFOs and OPS and that will get you through to my Twitter. As you may or may not know, it is only myself who does this show from the research to the writing to the producing here and now to the editing to the getting out to you. And it is a labour of love. I love it. I really do. I really do enjoy it. It's a really good hobby to do. But it does take time and energy. And it also takes a little bit of hard-earned cash as well. So, with all that in mind, if you would like to buy me a coffee, that would help me get through the day and help me definitely get through the show and keep me up at night doing the research for every single show. Just click on the link at the top of the Facebook group for buymeacoffee.com forward slash UFOs. If you click on that link, it will take you through to buymeacoffee.com where you can donate a little bit of money to buy me a coffee. And all the money that uh, that you donate will actually not go towards coffee, but it will go towards improving this show. If you let me know how you want this show to be improved, if you could donate a little bit too, that would be very, very kind, and I would be eternally grateful. You can also access the website, obviously just type in on your search bar, 
buymeacoffee.com and once you're in there, just search for UFOs and other paranormal stuff. And once again, I would be eternally, eternally grateful. I really would. Thank you very much. Just uh, while I'm recording this, if you hear a bit of background noise, that is because I've had to have the window open. It is four degrees outside, but inside it is absolutely baking. I'll close it very soon, hopefully. Now on with today's episode. Today's episode is about time slips. I will bet that a lot of people listening to this show, and a lot of people around the world generally, have had a time slip. Maybe not even realised it, but I'll, I'll, I'll be willing to put some money on it. Only a tenner though. So, I hear you ask, what is a time slip? A time slip is described as when a person or persons somehow and for, I don't know, whatever reason, momentarily, or for maybe a little bit longer, travel to another time. Usually this is in the past, but there has been some stories of people travelling into the future, possibly. I have a very odd feeling that I had a time slip way back in 2003, that sounds really odd saying way back in 2003. I remember when 2003 was the far future. Now it's what, nearly 20 years ago. Or am I showing my age there? Now for this episode, I've had to do quite a lot of research. There's actually not a lot out there of uh, information about time slips. So I'm using Time Storms by Jenny Randalls and also Encyclopedia of the Unexplained, also by Jenny Randalls and Peter Hoff. In the Encyclopedia of the Unexplained, Randalls and Hoff asked the question, is it possible to move through time from present moment, either forwards or backwards? Can we visit the past and observe life as our ancestors experienced it or leap forward to a place populated by our children's children? There are two fundamental theories which attempt to explain what time is. In the first, time is a linear phenomenon where only now exists. What is past is finished and cannot be revisited. The future does not yet exist and when it does it becomes the present. Linear time is readily and easily embraced by most of us, based as it is on chronological time. Yet it is man who devised the calendar and invented the wristwatch to bring some order out of the chaos of living. If this hypothesis is correct, then time travel is an impossibility. Yet time struggles to escape this man-made confinement. Our timetabled lives buckle under the pressure of days which seem to drag, and other days that contain too few hours. In the second theory, all time exists at once. The past, present and future become relative terms dependent on where in time we are presently located. J. W. Dunn wrote a book in the 1920s called An Experiment with Time. It contained Dunn's analysis of his dreams recorded over a long period. They were frequently precognitive, predicting personal events in his life and events of a global significance. He saw consciousness as the route to a true understanding of time. His dreams were a mixture of past, present and future events demonstrating 
he concluded all that all time existed at once. Time exists in a continuous loop. If we accept this model, then it might be possible to journey across the loop to a point either in the past or in the future. The whole of time could be likened to the images on a spool of videotape. All that would be required to conquer time travel would be the knowledge of how to operate the fast-forward and reverse controls. This may sound fantastic, but we already know that time is not as mundane as suggested in linear hypothesis. Albert Einstein himself, in theory of relativity, mathematically demonstrated that to an observer travelling close to the speed of light, something very strange would happen. The observer, for instance, leaving on a journey in a spacecraft and returning 14 years later, would discover that 65 years had passed on Earth. A 22-year trip would mean that almost a thousand had elapsed back home on Earth. In effect, he would have travelled into the future. Time slows down for an observer travelling at the very high velocity. Even stranger, our hypothetical space traveller would shrink in size, and decades would pass between meals as measured back on Earth. None of this would matter. On board the ship, everything would seem normal, and time would flow, relatively speaking, at its customary rate. If time sometimes referred to as the fourth dimension really is such a nebulous concept, then our lack of understanding it means that justifying anything is possible. I'm going to tell you now some stories of uh, time slips, including my favourite, the Versailles Affair. The Versailles Affair, the most famous case of time dislocation, occurred to two English tourists visiting the Palace of Versailles home of the French royal family during the 17th and 18th centuries. The adventurers were two women, Miss Anne Mobley and Miss Eleanor Jourdain. Now, these two women were academics of some standing. Miss Mobley was principal of St. Hugh's College in Oxford and Miss Jourdain head of a girls' school in Watford. Both were interested in history and not prone to fantasise. The story goes like this. On the warm afternoon of the 10th of August 1901, after leaving the galleries, the glasses, hope I pronounced that right, the, sp the spinsters decided to walk through the grounds to the Petit Trianon. Not sure of the way, they took a side lane where Miss Mobley saw a woman shaking a cloth from a window of a building. She learned later that her friend had not seen this. Indeed, the building did not exist. On a path, they came across two men wearing long greyish-green clothes and three-cornered hats. They seemed to be working on the path because a wheelbarrow, a spade, were nearby. The men gave them directions and the ladies continued their walk. Then Miss Jourdain noticed a woman and a teenage girl standing in the doorway of a cottage dressed in old-fashioned clothing. At this point, the landscape took on nightmare proportions becoming flat, almost two-dimensional, and both women felt a wave of depression sweep over them. Coincident with this, they approached a circular garden kiosk where a man was sitting. He looked sinister and repulsive, and they would not pass by him. Suddenly, there was a sound of footsteps behind them, 
but when they turned, no one was there. Miss Moberly noticed someone else standing nearby, a warm, smiling man wearing a cloak and sombrero. He directed them to the house. On the way, Miss Moberly noticed a woman sketching on the lawn. She was wearing a dress with a low-cut neckline and white shady hat. The woman turned and looked at the women as they walked past. Only afterwards did Miss Moberly discover that her friend had not seen the figure who bore a striking resemblance to the 18th century Queen of France, Marie Antoinette. As they turned, the women noticed a man with the air of a footman emerging from a building. He slammed shut the door and directed them to the entrance of the Petit Trianon. Once inside, the depression and atmosphere of unreality passed. Had the women slipped back in time and observed buildings and people dating just before the French Revolution, or is there a more prosaic explanation? Their book, An Adventure, was published ten years later. Since then, the case has been exhaustively investigated. Critics found discrepancies in the women's accounts. Further, it was discovered that an aristocrat called Comte Robert de Montesquieu Fenzenzac, obsessed with the 18th century, used to dress up in that period and, with some friends, frequent the Garden of Versailles. Some one also claimed that, as a child, she knew of a woman who in the summer often dressed up as Marie Antoinette and sit in the garden of the Petit Trianon. Had the two English ladies merely come across actors in period costume? If one accepts this as the explanation, the other intriguing facts of the story are ignored. If there were actors, how was it on several occasions that only one or other of the women saw them? The ladies described buildings and followed paths which no longer exist in the 20th century. Indeed, to have followed the route they claimed to have taken entailed walking through several brick walls. The pale of depression, the sensory effects, have all been described by other experiments of the time dislocation phenomenon. I have personally heard of a story of somebody I know who went to visit Hampton Court Palace. Uh, back in the 70s or the 80s, I can't remember which. Now, for those that don't know, Hampton Court Palace was at one stage the residence for Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, the chief minister of King Henry VIII. In 1529, as Wolsey fell from favour, the cardinal gave the palace to the king to check his disgrace. The palace went on to become one of Henry VIII's most favoured residences. Soon after acquiring the property, he arranged for it to be enlarged so that it more easily accommodate his sizable retinue of courtiers. Along with St. James's Palace, it is one of the only two surviving palaces out of the many that the king owned. The palace is currently in the possession of Queen Elizabeth II and the Crown. And the person I know that went to Hampton Court Palace said that she was on a tour with her mum and dad, just having a look round the place, as you do, go in the maze, get lost, and that come out, go and have a look round the palace. And she said she was a bit curious to have a look in one of the rooms that was maybe off, off uh, limits, public shouldn't be going in there. Nevertheless, she went in there, and she said that there were loads of people dressed in period costume from around the 16th century, and they were looking at her rather oddly. She said that there was a feeling of 
weirdness and she didn't like it at all. She asked somebody for the way back to the uh, main corridor and they just looked at her, didn't uh, speak to her at all. She said what made it even more weirder is that they were looking at her clothes with the same amount of sort of weirdness, I suppose, that she was looking at her, that their clothes. They looked as if she was out of time, not them. She managed to find her way back to the main corridor and back to her mum and dad who had moved on and carried on about her normal life. But to this day, she says that was the weirdest moment of her life. She did feel it was a weird experience and didn't tell anybody, at least until 2003, when watching the TV news, I think it was BBC News to be uh, correct, they showed CCTV images of a door at Hampton Court Palace inexplicably opening and then a ghost-like figure coming towards it and closing it up. Very strange indeed. I remember watching that actually on the TV news. Pictures seen on a TV screen are no more than a decoded electrical signal. Emotive events can apparently cause the strongest energy fields at a quantum level and these fields can be detected by some part of our mind. From this we might reasonably deduce that electrical fields generated by natural forces might be open to modulation just as TV signals are. If so, they could retain an emotional energy track of a powerful past event such as a crashing aircraft. Indeed, one day we may be able to build a device to decode such recordings. If so, it suggests that the world's first time machine may prove to be a VCR. London, UK, 1995. A curious story that might offer clues about this bizarre possibility was reported by Alex Brattell from East London. He lived in an apartment in a converted Victorian warehouse and had a security camera which screened a narrow view of any visitor standing at the door, complete with backdrop of the warehouses behind. The camera was removed for servicing, but after it was put back, visitors were shown on the monitor against a background of terraced houses that were not there. The servicing company could only suggest that a previous image, possibly from a location where the monitor had formerly been used, had burned onto the screen to create the ghost image. Oldham, UK, 1991. One of the most remarkable is the tape made by the security camera of the Butterflies nightclub in Oldham in October 1991. After an alarm was tripped one night, the police brought the owner to the scene. No robbery had taken place. But at the precise time the alarm was triggered, the camera had recorded a white form, seemingly a man, but not actually in the deserted building. The camera showed him walking along a corridor and passing straight through a wall. That does then bring about the question of could ghosts actually be real people going through a time slip? Answers and discussion on a postcard, please, actually, to my email address, UFOs and other paranormal stuff at gmail.com. In 1974, a writer named Andrew Thomas published a book called Beyond the Time Barrier. In it, he talked about the possibility of time television, where electromagnetic pictures from the future 
might manifest themselves on television set. In the same year of the publication, an incident occurred, apparently demonstrating the reality of time television. On Saturday, 1st of June 1974, the giant chemical plant at Flixborough, now in Humberside, exploded in a devastating ball of flame. The accident destroyed most of the plant and killed 29 people. The surrounding area was evacuated as a huge black clouds containing poisonous gases were released by the terrific heat. Yet one person, housewife Leslie Castleton, heard of the tragedy six hours before it happened. I was watching the Saturday morning film on television, she t later told interviewers when it was suddenly interrupted by the words newsflash which came across the screen. A man's voice gave details of a horrific explosion at Flixborough. He gave numbers for the people who had died and had been injured and the names of the chemicals responsible for the explosions. The news flash then went off and the film continued. Mrs Castleton was utterly convinced by the news broadcast and when some friends came to see her at lunchtime she told them of the awful tragedy. When she and her husband watched the news that night, it stated the time of the accident at 16.30 hours. Mrs. Castleton naturally assumed that the reporters had made a mistake. When she read the Sunday morning paper the following day and they confirmed the time, she realised something was very wrong. Mrs. Castleton telephoned her friends and they assured her that she had told them of the accident that lunchtime. I went really cold. I realised then I had seen something which hadn't yet taken place, she said. Was this a television broadcast from the future, slipping through a cracking time? If so, why that particular item, and why did it fail to appear on other t television sets in the region? Could it have been a premonition which set presented itself in the form of a television broadcast to make it acceptable to Mrs Castleton? Early in 1946, Helen York of Bellwood, Illinois, was washing up the dinner pots when a glass in the kitchen shimmered and the scene outside shortly changed. She told Fates magazine in January 1988, There on the glass, like a movie, I saw the image of our Buick, which was parked outside the front of the house. Then in the picture, I saw a car speeding from the north Sideswipe our car. The driver pulled over to the curb and a man staggered out, looked at our smashed car and started to run. But that was not the end of it. The camera-like movie followed the man into a house where he hid in the basement behind some boxes. The viewpoint changed and Mrs York saw the police examining their car and the man's vehicle and then radioing through the information. Next, the scene cut to the front of the police station where officers were taking the driver inside. There, the desk sergeant booked him with drunken driving and leaving the scene of an accident. The glass shimmered again and the scene outside returned to normal. Mrs York said nothing and she, her husband and a friend called Smitty went out to attend a political meeting. They went in the friend's car and despite her protestations, the couple's Buick was left parked on the road. They arrived home late to discover someone had run into the parked car. The men suggested calling the police, but Mrs York surprised them by stating they already knew about it and had the man in custody. 
When they spoke to the desk sergeant, he confirmed details exactly as Helen York had observed them several hours before. All very strange, isn't it, time slips? Going into the future or going into the past or actually just maybe seeing, not going anywhere. Who knows? I want to tell you now of my story that happened in 2003. I can't remember exactly when it was, but I do know that it was a nice summer's day. It was a nice warm day. And we were heading off to a party in Whitstable, which is in Kent, right on the north coast of Kent in the UK. While my mum and dad took most of the uh, of the group down to the party, I drove my two second cousins. It was a good two-hour drive down there, and it was lovely. They enjoyed it. Had the party, and then decided to come back. I think we started back at about seven o'clock. My mum and dad and the rest of their group left, I think, about five, six, ten minutes before before I did, uh, with the two second cousins. No sat-navs in those days. Once you got lost, you were lost, and we didn't have a map either. Here's where things get a little bit hazy, because I cannot remember how we got to where we got to. Living in South London, we should never have ended up where we actually did. But what I think happened was we basically got onto the M2 motorway and went west towards London and then took a very wrong turning, ending up north of the River Thames when we had no need to go north of the River Thames. It was absolutely unnecessary. <laughs> Maybe I was giving my two second cousins a little bit of a uh, sightseeing tour around London at night. What I do remember is being completely confused and not knowing where I was at all. But it was also very warm still. It was obviously in the middle of summer, and I think 2003 was one of the hottest summers on record at the time. So I pulled over to a shop and went in to buy some uh, water for me and the children. Upon returning to my car with the water, I noticed something shiny in the overgrown sort of grassy area that the car was parked next to. First of all, I found it a little bit weird to have such a vast area that was just unkept and overgrown. But more weirder than that was the fact that this thing that was a little bit shiny, metallic, obviously it was metallic because it was a piece of railway track. What was a piece of railway track doing in an unkept part of the East End? So, of course, me being the railway person that I was, and possibly still am, I had to have a look. And I discovered the parallel track. It wasn't just one piece of track that had been left there. It was a parallel piece of track. It was a natural little network because there was loads of tracks there. When I mean overgrown, this stuff was up to a good few feet high. I'm six foot two and it was it was up to about my height at least. So I thought I'd go further into it. And there was pieces of track after track after track. And I thought, this is... Like a gold mine? How did nobody know this was here? Then I saw a wagon. Now, this wasn't a wagon as we used to in sort of the late 90s, early 2000s. This wagon looked like it dated from a time pre-1930s or something. It was wooden and had writing on the side, and that's how they used to do things in the old days of steam. But I'm thinking... This is very weird because a collector would have had that. and would have snapped that up straight away. A heritage line would have taken it for detail. They would have had that straight away. So what was this wagon doing on this network of tracks, seemingly abandoned, in the East End? 
No idea. I had no idea at all. Then, as I walked further into the area, I noticed even more old-style-looking wagons. They didn't look too much in disrepair. They just were old-style. And I thought, this is very, very weird. Very, very weird indeed. Someone should have had these away. Of course, it was night time. But, to me, still, I was seeing what I was seeing, and it was strange that it was there. Then the weirdest thing of all. Two things, in fact. Two actual locomotives. Actual engines. To me, they looked like uh, tank engines, like Thomas the Tank Engine. A couple of those kind of things, maybe smaller. But they were actually there. So much so that I could actually get into the cab and have a little look. And I thought, this is not right. Health and safety would have had a field day if they knew about this. I thought, what is going on? These looked in pretty good nick. A little bit of rust here and there. Looked like they'd only been abandoned for, uh, I don't know, a year or two to me. Anyway, I had to get the kids back to home, which included driving across the picturesque and ever-beautiful Tower Bridge, and then heading into South London. I thought, when I get home, my dad, being a railway person as well, I'll have a look at one of his books. He, he owned a railway atlas which shows all the rails basically every piece of rail in the uk even the disused ones and it was a railway atlas of 2002 i believe so it should have been well up to date and i was hoping it would include the area that we were in it didn't so over the over the months i decided to have a look through my dad's collection of old railway history books couldn't find too much in there then in, of course, 2006 or 2007, Google invented Google Earth, which is a series of photos collected by satellites, basically showing you every piece of Earth from above. And I thought, you know what? It's going to be on there. It's got to be on there. I couldn't find it. I tried to retrace my steps from Whitstable all the way to the east end of London. In fact, I spent hours and days scouring over the east end of London to see if I could see this area of railway and I couldn't. It was very strange because it was such a vast area of overgrownness that it would have been visible from from space surely. Couldn't find it anywhere and I looked and I looked and I looked and the times I went back to where I thought it would be and it's not there, not there at all. And I thought this was very, very weird. What had happened? What, what what was it exactly? Why were the engines and the uh, the wagons still there? When, a, like I said, a collector would have had them and a heritage line would have had them away. They would have been used. They would have been restored. They would have been worth a lot. But yet they were left there. It was a few years later, I think 2016, when Google added a, I think they call it a timeline or a time travel thing at the top of uh, Google Earth. Basically meaning that you're able to have a look at the same area, but of pictures taken of that area uh, in previous years. If you have a look on Google Earth, not Google Maps, but Google Earth, have a look along the top and you'll see an icon which looks like a clock with a green arrow sort of pointing backwards over the clock. That is the one. When you do that, a little timeline appears in blue on the top right. And for this particular area of East London, 
I was able to go and have a look back in 2003 and I couldn't see too much. There was a few railway areas, uh, lots of uh, uh, construction sites and this and that, but nothing. Then uh, sometime later, I was able to go back and have a look at 1985. Still, again, nothing. It was a bit uh, grainy as well, if I'm honest. A few months later, pictures were added, which I can only presume were taken by the Luftwaffe as they were going over the east end of London. The reason being because those photographs, Google dated them as being from 1945. And I did my search once again, looking over all the photos from the area in 1945 and comparing them to 2003 and, of course, the current time in 2016, as was. And I think I found it. I'm not 100% sure, but it could have been a railway yard or a railway uh, depot, train maintenance depot, that was in the East End at least in 1945 and ceased operations since. That would explain the old style wagons. That would also explain the old style of, uh, of uh, locomotives. Now maybe if it was a time slip, I might not slip back into 1945. It might have been just after 1945. Of course, the Luftwaffe bombed a heck of a lot of uh, the east end of London and they severed a lot of railways of course trying to strangle the uh, British economy you have to stop the railways you have to stop the supplies getting in and out and the railways were well huge back in the 1940s and 50s maybe I might have slipped back into the 50s who knows it was all very weird but who knows, I think the place it may have been could possibly have been the area that was there before the Ripple Lane train maintenance depot was built. But again, who knows, there were so many little depots and yards way back in the 40s and the 50s and possibly even the 60s before the cuts began to happen. All very mysterious indeed. And of course, that's why I love doing this show, because of the mysteries of the stories that come forth. Anyway, please send me your emails. Do keep in touch. Uh, send me the emails to UFOs and other paranormal stuff at gmail.com. Again, have a look at the Facebook group, UFOs and other paranormal stuff at UFOs and OPS on Twitter. And again, don't forget, please don't forget to buy me a coffee. It would be nice. I could do with one. Take care until I see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>